If you want to turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3, looking at verses uh, 14 to 16 here this morning. And if anyone, and if anyone needs a Bible, if anyone doesn't have a Bible, uh, I think we have something to pass out. If you want to be brave enough to put your hand up, if anyone would like a Bible, I've uh, got a uh, guy in the back over here, Roger. I don't know if anyone else. It's something, a new habit we're going to start to build. Are you guys just back, back around the corner? Okay. Yeah, you got it. It's something we want to, you know, have in the future. If, if you came, you didn't bring your Bible, uh, but we'll put one in your hands. We'll all open it up together. And then if you don't have a Bible, people can just, you can just keep it. We'd like to put that in people's hands. So a new habit we'll, we're, God willing, starting to build here in the church. Before actually reading uh, the scripture and beginning, I'd just like to go to the Lord in prayer. Again, if you want to bow with me. Holy Father, yes, what a joy it is to sing uh, songs to your name. What a joy it is to be able to gather uh, freely as your people. God, we don't take it for granted. We don't want to take it for granted. And now as we, as we open up your word, I pray Oh, Lord, that you would speak. Pray, Holy Spirit, that you would speak through me, that you would uh, send forth your, your word and that we would have open ears and, and open hearts. I pray that any who, who do not know you in your, in your kindness, in your mercy, that you would allow them to see their need for Christ, allow them to turn and, and trust in him. I pray you would build us up by your word proclaimed. Oh God, this is an act only that you can do, Lord. And so I pray you'd use my study, use the work I've done. But Lord, uh, speak through me now uh, for your glory and honor. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Just before uh, we read the scripture, just a question. Uh, what should we be about? And, and maybe thinking about the church here. Like, what's the crux of the situation? What is the heart of the matter? And I think we all love a, a company, a good company that knows what they are about and they're focused on it. And just my one uh, lame example, I, I was thinking of uh, the In-N-Out Burger in California. I don't know if anyone's ever experienced In-N-Out Burger. They do like burgers, fries, shakes. That's it. And they do it well. <laughs> Like, but that's it. They're, they're like, they're a burger company. They're not trying to be anything else. And they do it well. And I think sometimes even other burger companies can get confused about the heart of the matter. Uh, even A&W, like serving Beyond Meat burgers. <laughs> You're like, people come to you for hamburgers. There's some confusion there. And I think even in the, in the church, we can, we can get confused. What is the heart of the matter? What's the main thing? What should we be about? A number of years ago, I, I was at a, a, a church conference. It was in California. It was at this massive mega church. The one auditorium, I think, seated 7,000 people. It was this massive sprawl of I don't know how many acres, and they had like a whole kids' ministry across the football field. And there was like a pond. I think it actually had fish in it. It was California. And then the whole the youth center, it had two half-court basketball hoops, one on top of another. It had like a little mini skate park. And you're like, wait a second, what, what's the church supposed to be about? What's the heart of the matter? It's like they had lost their focus 
Proverbs 4.23 says, guard your heart above all else, for from it flows the wellsprings of life. And I believe that's what this section of scripture is we're going to be looking at. It's like, what is the heart of the letter of 1 Timothy? And what's the heart of the church? Where should our, our focus be? And I pray that's what we would see here this morning. So if you want to stand with me as we read 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 to 16, the heart of the letter. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. May God bless his word to our souls this morning. You can have a seat. Excuse me. So looking at here, I believe the heart of the letter here in 1 Timothy, in verse 14, Paul references the purpose of the letter. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave. Paul's, he says in, in 1 Timothy 1.3, says to Timothy, as I urge you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus. Paul was traveling. He knew there was a situation happening within the church at Ephesus. There was a problem. There were false teachers that need to be corrected. As he's traveling, he's writing instructions to Timothy. Hey, go there. These are further instructions. Paul's like, but I hope to get there. I hope to get there soon. But if I delay, I find it very interesting. Paul, spirit-filled man, he's making plans. He plans to go to Ephesus, but he knows things could go, come up. I did, this is just a total side note to the message. Think about this, Proverbs 16, 1 and verse 9. Proverbs 16, 1 says, The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. And 16, 9, The heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. Even for the apostle Paul, that he's like, hey, I hope to get there, but I might be delayed. And uh, we should all, I just want to bring that before your attention. We all know this. We make plans with open hands. And Paul was doing that too. Hey, I hope to get there soon, but I might be delayed. And so even as your plans get stifled and stopped and changed around, well, God's in control. We still make plans, but do that with open hands. That's what Paul was doing. So he's writing this letter, hoping to visit soon. And what is he saying? He says, I'm writing these things to you. What are these things that he has written so far? If you've been with us in chapter one, Paul wrote about the correction that need to happen to the false teachers. They need to be commanded not to speak these false doctrines anymore. He, he brought clarity to the gospel message in saying in uh, 1 Timothy 1, Verse 15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He brought this clarity to the message. And then he also, to Timothy, is like, hey, you know what you've been called to do. Get at it. Get going. That was in chapter 1 and chapter 2. It says, uh, he begins first of all then. So he kind of changed his attention to things he's writing about. He, he focuses on the church gathered. And he talks about how they should pray. That, that should be like the first focus of the church. This is how you should pray. This is how you should worship. 
And there's instruction to men and women and what that can look like for them. Then he turns his instruction to church leadership. The calling of an elder, the calling of a deacon, who should these be? He's writing these things to them that if he, if he doesn't make it, you'll know how one should act in the church, how one ought to behave. So with his writing, the purpose of the letter, he comes to kind of the purpose of the church there in 15, that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. I want us to see here the church is organized in God's way. The church is organized in God's way. It says how we ought to behave or ought to conduct ourselves. Again, in this this aspect, he's again referring to leadership, to organization, to the purpose of the church. William Mount says this, Paul is not saying that the behavior he is describing is optional. It is mandated because the church is the house of the living God, a protector of the truth, and is therefore absolutely essential that its integrity be maintained. You may know how you ought to behave in the household of God, and how do you join, how do you enter into the household of God? Well, it's by faith in Christ. It's like, yeah, we can all come in through the doors this morning and sit down, but how do you enter into the household of God? It's by believing and trusting in Jesus Christ, by surrendering your life to him. It's interesting, it's called the household of God. He's used this language already, talking about the call for elders and deacons and how they manage their household. In 1 Timothy 3, 4, and 5, for elders, speaking of their call, he says, the elder, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? And so it transfers over how people would act in their household, how they would do things, care for one another, have the gospel present. That needs to first be seen in the house and then transferred over to the household of God. We get it in our own households. Families have established rules and norms which are followed for the flourishing of the family life. There's order of submissions, kids to their parents, wives to their husbands. There's unwritten rules within each family, household, or maybe written ones to keep your room clean, use your manners. Of course, I'm, at a, I'm thinking of kids. Flush the toilet. <laughs> maybe we need to write down some of these rules. But to think about it, like, so there's these rules that we have within our own households, and then there's rules that we have as we meet, as we gather in the household of God. That you may know how one ought to behave. And you just think, so there's like talks about leadership, talks about purpose. As we go through the scriptures, what should we be doing? Well, we should be opening up the word of God. We should be praying. We should be worshiping. That you may know how one ought to behave. But is, is everything listed here? I just want to point this out. Just as each house can have its own culture and the way that it is organized and, and lives, each church can have its own culture and norms to how it defines church life. And what I mean, I mean not in the essential things, but I mean even in the, in the year previous as a church, we met on Saturday evenings. That's when it worked for us to meet. Right? So there, even though convictionally, hey, we want to meet on Sunday mornings when we can, but we met on Saturday evenings. And you don't see prescribed within the scriptures like how many songs should we sing? As we gather together, 
How often should we have communion? There are all these things that as a, as a household of the church of God, that we as a church, we start to de- decide we have our own culture, if that makes sense, our own way of doing things. And again, I talked to how do you enter into the household of God? Well, it's by faith in Jesus Christ. And then you ask, like, well, who is in the household of God for our expression of the church, redemption, red deer? As a, as a church plant or a young church, we had different people coming from different church backgrounds and all places. We praise the Lord what he has done so far. But then how do we clarify who is in the household of God? And, and one way we do that is through church membership. And in this message, I'm like, I'm reading here about how we ought to behave, and I'm taking it just a step aside. I just want to address church membership. This is not directly here from the text, but how one ought to behave within the church. He's given elders and deacons. And who do you know is in the household of God? Church membership. And the reason I want to highlight it is because actually that's one of the number one things that we talk with with people. Hey, I'm in the church Why do I need to become a member? So I just want to spend a little bit of time in front of everyone unpacking a little bit of scripture in that, hoping to make it clear. Church membership, the phrase itself is not used in the Bible, but it's clearly inferred in the scriptures. In the same way, we wouldn't find the phrase, the Trinity, within the Bible, yet we know we serve a holy triune God. All of the Apostle Paul's letters, except 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus, were written to local churches. There weren't many local churches in a city at that time. There was one church that they were writing to. There was only one expression of the church. We live in a day and age in which there are many local churches in a given locality. I've heard that there are over 40 within Red Deer. I don't know. I've never counted how many there actually are within this city. A church membership gives clarity to which church it is that you belong to and are committed to. It's more than just coming and sitting in the chairs and giving to that church because you can just as easily get up and go and sit down in another church and give there. It's a greater commitment than that. Church membership defines who it is we are doing the one another's with, right? And the one another's in scripture, I'll list a few. We are to carry one another's burdens, Galatians 6, 2, love one another, Romans 12, 10, sing to one another, Ephesians 5, 19, admonish one another, Colossians 3, 16, build up one another, Romans 14, 19, the list could go on and on. We're not doing this with all Christians, the one another's, but primarily we're doing it with our local body and church membership clarifies who that body is. Hebrews 13, 7 says, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls. As those who will have to give an account, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage of you. Church membership helps believers know which leaders are they submitting to. You're not submitting to all leadership. You're submitting to a a local church group of leaders. But it also helps the believers know, or the elders also know, who the believers are that they'll be held accountable to before God. Paul writes in Ephesians 4, 11 to 12, he gave the apostles, the prophets, and the evangelists, the shepherds and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Church membership gives clarity to which, which saints the shepherds and teachers are to equip. Like it isn't all believers that we are to equip. We are to equip a specific group of believers. It helps give focused discipleship. 
Church membership also is calling the local body of Christ to keep one another accountable to the confession we made as Christians. From it flows the need to exhort one another when we see habitual sin in each other's lives. Proper church membership allows for church discipline to be practiced properly, seeking to keep the church pure. Matthew 18, 15 to 17. And friends, if you think, like, why do a formal process of church membership? We take time in a marriage ceremony to celebrate and declare a couple's love and commitment to each other. The relationship that has begun progresses from friendship to courting to engagement to marriage and then the, then the ceremony. In the same way, we see a formal membership process as a way to publicly state our commitment to one another. The process at our church is like coming Maybe going to Redemption Welcome, learning about the history of the church, then Redemption Essentials, which is really just talking about how to become a mature believer within the church. How are we seeking to do that so we're all on the same page? And from there, a membership application, an interview, and then coming forward as a member. But the reason we have this process for us to walk through is to give clarity who is with us and, and who is not. In membership, we are saying we are committed to the same convictions, the same community, the same corporate mission. In a sense, saying, I'm with these guys. They are my family. And of course, as believers, we're all brothers and sisters in Christ, but it's like of the household of God, the expression that you are a part of, which is it? And we're not part of every single one, not accountable to every single leader. And so... Membership gives clarity there. So that's just an expression of the household of God here. I just wanted to articulate that, give a little bit more understanding. Uh, send me or the other elders uh, questions if you have them. And I hope that this will give us the greater clarity while we have church membership at our church. And I hope for those who call this place home, when you are ready, you'll be able to commit in this way. So all, all that being said, that's kind of like, just an aside, I just wanted to clarify that, take the opportunity. But I, then I want to go back to First Timothy. In saying all that, we as leaders are just under shepherds. <laughs> and this is God's church. Right? As we go back to First Timothy 15, talking about how you ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. It's the church. And I'm just going to highlight almost every time I see the word church for the next little while. That word church, ecclesia, means gathered. It's the gathered people. That's the church. There's something happens when we physically gathered. There's no such thing as doing church online. That's an oxymoron. It's contradictory. You can listen to sermons online, but you can't gather together with the saints looking at your computer. So I just want to... I'll probably keep pointing that out. So sometime in the future, if we need to be like, why are we gathering? We know why we're gathering. We're the church. That's what we do. And speaking of the church, that being the Lord's, the church of the living God, Paul said to the Ephesian elders at an earlier time, Acts 20, 28, he said, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood, it's Jesus Christ. It's his, it's his bride. That's the church. That's the household of God. It's the church of the living God. And the, that term, living God, I don't know how you understand when you think of who God is. Use Lord. Use Adonai. Use Yahweh. 
The living God, it's a phrase used often in the Bible. I just want to bring a few places where it's said. Uh, David says it when he's about to fight Goliath. I don't know if you know the story in 1 Samuel 17. And Goliath, like that big giant, he's touting the army of Israel. And David hears the touting, the mocking. And he says this in 1 Samuel 17, verse 26, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? It's also said in Psalm 84, the psalmist in verse 2 says, My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. And just one other place, I just want to bring you uh, Daniel chapter 6, verse 26. And again, just rushing through these stories, but Daniel chapter 6 is when Daniel was thrown into the lion's den, where the, the king Darius made a decree and people kind of like, kind of hoodwinked him or tricked him into making this thing. Hey, anyone who worships a different God will be thrown into the lion's den. And Daniel, he's just a faithful man. He prays three times a day and he prayed. They threw him into a lion's den. The lion's mouths were shut, right? And Daniel comes out alive. And then after this decree is made by King Darius, by a pagan king, in Daniel 6, 26, I make a decree that in all my royal dominion people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. I just love that. Friends, we worship the living God. We don't come and there's not some dead statue of, of Buddha. There's not an icon of Mary. We worship the living God, the one who gives us breath and life. And everything we have, as I drove here this morning, I saw this amazing sunrise. It was pink and it was red. And it's because the living God had painted another picture upon the sky. I don't know about you. I don't know. Maybe, hey, you come on a Sunday morning. Maybe you're forced to be here like, oh, another, oh, another Sunday. I got to go to, oh, I got to go to church. Like, why did you come if not to meet with God's people and the living God? That's an amazing thing. We're gathered together. We're singing songs. Hey, we can't see him, God who's invisible, but our songs are rising before the throne to the living God. So in that, we see this is the church of the living God. And what is the church to be about? I want to see the purpose of the church is to uphold the truth. The church of the living God is to be a pillar and buttress of the truth. Pillar, we all get, holding something up. Buttress, it could be translated as support or a foundation. Again, both things are meant to say it's holding up the truth. And what is the truth? Well, very broadly, we're holding up the word of God. 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17, all scripture is breathed out by God unprofitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We want to uphold the truth of God's word. We don't want to proclaim a different, a false truth. That doesn't make sense. We want to pro proclaim a lie. Where the world will say, hey, humans are, are, are actually more like viruses. There's too many. There's too many humans. We're wiping out the earth. We're destroying the planet. We actually need to bow down to creation. And instead, I, I read in Scripture, 
It's good to be fruitful and multiply, and babies are good, and babies are wonderful, and they're a gift from the Lord. And actually, we're called as Christians, we're called as humans made in the image and likeness of God to rule over creation. Right? So that's, there's so many examples I could go to, but we want to be about the truth, the truth of God's word. So very widely, Robert Yarborough says this, the church is a pillar, is a straightforward metaphor expressing its load-bearing role in upholding the truth. And even in that, like we're upholding it. We don't get to define what the truth is. We just get to proclaim what it is. Very widely, the word of God. Very narrowly, the gospel. 1 Timothy 2.4, Paul says this, God our Savior desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. The truth. What happens when the church doesn't uphold the truth but instead caves to culture? You can imagine if we were to be a pillar and buttress and uphold the truth, but we, we don't do that. The truth falls to the ground. And just as an example for you, just thinking through the, the history of the United Church, the United Church in Canada, I guess it started in the 1920s. And the reason it started is because a lot of small communities, particularly across the prairies, they had like a Presbyterian church and a Methodist church and a Congregationalist church, and they couldn't afford to have the same, each have a pastor. And they're like, why don't we come together? The United Church. Why don't we pool our resources? And I'd say even early on, there were, there were solid people who preached the word of God within the United Church. But let me just go through their history very quickly. It was in 1936 that they ordained their first woman preacher, Reverend Lydia Amelie Grouchy of Saskatchewan Conference. She became the first woman uh, ordained in the United Church. In the 1940s, they were in support and, and wanted to take ground and move forward the ecumenical movement. Hey, we're just all in this together. Doesn't matter what we believe, doesn't matter sound doctrine, let's just hold hands and move forward. Jumping ahead in 1980s, on August 17th, 1980, United Church of Canada Task Force released In God's Image, that's what it was called, its report on sexual ethics, which recommended the admission of homosexuals into the ministry and tolerance of premarital sex. In 1997, the Reverend Bill Phipps was elected moderator at the 36th General Council Controversy again descended on the church when later that same year, Phipps stated in an interview, I don't believe Jesus was God and that he did not believe that Jesus physically rose from the dead. The truth was being dropped. In 2015, a debate emerged whether or not United Church minister Greta Vosper, an avowed atheist, was suitable for ministry. And it, it turns out 2018, Vosper and the Toronto Conference reached a settlement in which all outstanding matters were resolved. Vosper continues to serve at West Hill United Church. The pillar collapsed. Truth fell to the ground. For the church to uphold the truth, its leadership must, must uphold it. Its members must uphold it. I mean, its members must uphold it. It's not like, hey, I came to church and I opened up my Bible on a Sunday and it's closed until next Sunday. It's like, you gotta be in the truth. You gotta be in God's word. If we're gonna uphold the truth together, individually, you must uphold the truth of God's word. Read it. 
Seek to obey it. As leadership, we must uphold God's word, put ourselves underneath it. Often be surrendering ourselves to the Lord and to his will, to his way. And be held accountable for the word of God. And I'll just share this. Even the, the message I preached last week, there's some disagreements in, in what I said about deacons, whether it can be women or not, the role of deacon. And so someone put forward a, a letter. But I, I would say this, I appreciate we're in the scripture. The letter's like, hey, this is how I understand the scripture, and we're having this conversation as leaders with, this, with these people. Well, this is how we understand the scripture, and this ongoing conversation, but it's not a, hey, this is my opinion, this is what I think should happen. We're opening up the word of God, and that's how we're working through it. And that, that's what we want. We want our Bibles open. We want to be held accountable for everything that's set up here. Is it in the word of God? So to uphold the truth of God's word, it's an individual effort, and it's a collective effort that is needed, but that is our desire as the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And again, like what, what truth are we talking about? The word of God broadly, the gospel narrowly. And then verse 16, I, re I think, really nails down what is the truth. Verse 16, the truth is Jesus Christ. Verse 16, Paul continues, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. Great indeed we confess. That word of confess is like a general agreement. It's saying, hey, we're all on the same page. We're all in agreement with what is being said. A great confession shared by all believers. Great we confess is the mystery of godliness. If you were with us last week, we talked about what is this mystery. We see it talking about deacons in uh, 3 verse 9. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And just to give clarity, like what is the mystery? The mystery is Christ. You want to turn with me to Colossians chapter 1 verse 25 to 27. There's a number of places you can go to. This word is used often uh, here in the Bible. The mystery, though, is something that was hidden uh, for generations, but then it's revealed in these times, Jesus Christ. Colossians 1, verse 25, Paul talking about how he became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. What is the mystery? Verse 27, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The mystery is Christ. As Paul writes in Timothy, a mystery unto godliness. In verse 27, Colossians 1, 28, him we proclaim, Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. The mystery is Christ. Godliness flows through a right understanding of who Jesus Christ is, submission to his will, his rule, his way. The mystery of godliness is Christ. Robert Yarborough says this, in Christ's person and work lies the key to the strength and flourishing of the church. And then we, we see this, I believe this confession, this catechism that Paul kind of nails down what's the mystery or well, we're going to see what the mystery is. This is, this is. Is this your confession? Is this your understanding of who Jesus is? It's really spelled out here. And I don't know if it's like an ancient 
like a catechism, like something people would memorize, truths about who Jesus was, or if it was a hymn. We're not entirely sure, but as I'm as I read it, as I'm preaching it, I'm seeing it, it's like this story about who Jesus from his birth to his ascension. I'm going to see why I'm going to use it that way, but it's also true that we carry on what's described here about Jesus, this confession. What's the first thing? Say, he was manifested in the flesh. He was manifested in the flesh. First, first Peter 1.20 says this, Speaking of Christ, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believing in God. He was manifest in the flesh. Same thing is said, John 1.14. I don't know if you realize it, this is, a, this is a Christmas text. You thought we were out of Christmas. We're back into it. We're celebrating the birth of Christ. That's what it's talking about. He was manifested in the flesh. John 1.14 says this, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He was manifested in the flesh. He was revealed. He appeared. This is the amazing thing. God, the Son, who has existed for all of eternity at some point in time, about 2,023 years ago, was born as a little baby, clothed in flesh. That's, this is the first thing that we're confessing as Christians. Jesus Christ, he was manifested in the flesh. And why is that a big deal? Robert Yarbrough says this, the difference between God and man is very great, and yet in Christ we see God's infinite glory joined to our polluted flesh so that, we, so that the two can become one. Just think about Jesus, that he in his humanity represents us before God. 1 Timothy 2.5 speaks of there's one God, there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus in his humanity, he represents us on our behalf. Who's, who among us can stand and say, yes, I have a case with God? We, we can say nothing but Jesus, who's 100% man, can represent us all. But he's 100% God. So in his divinity, he was able to take upon the cross the punishment that would have taken eternity to pour out on me. You just think about that, right? People, God, in his justice, those who would rebel against him who want nothing to do with him, and on judgment day, they'll be thrown into the lake of fire for all of eternity to suffer. And God will be just. Yet Jesus, 100% God, 100% man, took the wrath that we deserve in a matter of hours on the cross. He was manifested in the flesh. That is a big deal. Next it says he was vindicated by the Spirit. He was vindicated by the Spirit. I believe that this is referring to the resurrection. If you'll turn with me and, and look at Romans 1, 4. Just looking at a few places. He's vindicated by the Spirit, Romans 1.4, it says this, speaking of Jesus, he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, Romans 8.11, it says, if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life 
to your mortal bodies through a spirit who dwells in you. The spirit raised Jesus from the dead. Other places, it says the father raised Jesus from the dead. Other places, it said Jesus rose again from the dead. But vindicated by the spirit, I believe it's talking about his resurrection, right? He died on the cross for our sins, took our punishment, was buried, and rose again. Defeating sin and death. Because think about, he claimed he was going to do it. He claimed he'd be buried in the grave and three days later rise again. And if he didn't, if that never happened, he would have been a liar. He'd been false. But he didn't. He rose again. He reigns at the right hand of the Father. He was vindicated by the Spirit. Seen by angels is the next statement. I believe, again, this is talking about the resurrection. So he's vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels. All of the gospel accounts have either one or two angels present. They were the first ones to see. The stones rolled back. Jesus has rose again from the grave. My, probably my favorite statements within the gospel, right, as the, the women are coming to see, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Can we say that even when it's not Easter Sunday? <laughs> Amen. This is an amazing thing. So other people actually, as they, as they look at this, seen by angels, they think, okay, maybe is this describing when he ascended into heaven or the fact that as he defeated sin and death, he actually defeated all powers and authorities. Angels are under him. I think you could interpret it that way, but I think if we, if we go from his birth to his ascension into heaven, I think it makes more sense. It's talking about seen by angels. It's the one of the resurrection. The next uh, kind of confession, he's proclaimed among the nations or preached among the nations. Again, if this is like if we're going from his birth to his ascension, this is going to be forward-looking. Just turning to uh, Luke chapter 24, verse 45 to 48, I always want you to see this, or 46 to 48. Jesus said to them, it is written, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Right? This is the call from the risen Lord Jesus Christ, that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Again, if, this, if we're keeping this timeline, he's looking forward like this is going to happen one day. If you think at the writing of 1 Timothy when they read this, when they were talking about it, you are, the, the book of Acts has already happened. While I'm re referring to the, the book of Acts, well, you have in Acts uh, chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus, before he rose again, he says this, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth, proclaimed among the nations. We have this example. If you think the gospel in the book of Acts, it starts in Jerusalem. The book of Acts ends 28 chapters later in Rome. And there's three missionary journeys in between. The gospel spreads to the then known world, preached among the nations, proclaimed among the nations. And of course, this, the next point is obviously tied in with the one before, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world. How is someone going to believe unless they have someone come and preach to them? Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Right? Like the, the gospel didn't spread by people just smiling at, each, at one another. It says proclaimed among the nations. 
It doesn't say, hey, by all means, by all means necessary, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. It says proclaim. You actually have to tell someone about Jesus Christ. And that's what happened. They went out and they told people about Jesus Christ. So then the next step is believed on in the world. And again, this is either forward-looking, like when they go out, they will believe on him in the world, or reflecting on something that has already happened. Again, think of the book of Acts, how it goes out. I just want to read you the start of a few letters in Scripture. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 8. It says this, Paul writing to the church at Thessalonica, not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. So we do not have to say anything. They were believed on in the world, the book of Colossians. 1 verse 2, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. There's a church in Colossae. There wasn't before. Believed on in the world, Romans 1.8. Paul writes, first I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Isn't that an amazing thing? The start of the book of Acts, there's believers, 120 of them in Jerusalem. The spirit comes and the gospel spreads. Believed on in the world. Believed on what? Believed on Christ. The mystery of godliness, believed on Christ. What does that mean? It means to surrender to him. It means to like, to, we use the language, bow the knee. It's not, oh yeah, yeah, I believe. I believe. I heard a good example. I read a good example about believing. There was this guy, and I might kill this because I'm trying to go by memory, but someone, I think he was going across this high wire act over the falls. I don't know if it was Niagara. And he's like, who here believes I can do this and like wheel a guy in a barrel? And this guy's like, I do. I believe. He's like, okay, get up in the barrel. <laughs> and so often we talk about belief. Yeah, yeah, believe in Jesus Christ. Yeah, yeah, I do. I'm, when I'm talking about believe in Jesus Christ, believe on him, I mean like you're surrendering. You're like, my life is yours, God. It's not Jesus take the wheel, it's get in the trunk. You know what I mean? Like that's actually what is happening as a Christian. You can breathe in there still. <laughs> Believed on in the world. And I just, have, I just have to say this one more thing. How do you think the gospel spread? Proclaimed to the nations, believed on in the world. It was from ordinary people whose lives have been changed by Jesus Christ, who lived differently, who told the truth, who wanted to be sexually pure, who met people with kindness and gentleness and, and proclaimed the word of God. It wasn't like, it wasn't just Apostle Paul going around yelling at everyone. He preached, churches were planted, but then just regular people as Christ transformed their lives. That's how the gospel spread. Oh, may he do it in us. And lastly, finishing this confession, taken up in glory. And that's why I would say, hey, this is talking about from his birth to his ascension, taken up in glory. We see this, uh, the place in Scripture is defined most clearly at the start of the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1, verses 9 to 11. It says this, and when he had said these things, Jesus as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. So he's taken up in glory. 
And they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken off from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. I think this is the, this is the thing. This is the amazing thing. What have we talked about here this morning? The heart of the letter, the purpose of the church. Uphold the truth. Christ is the center of this truth, the mystery of godliness, manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory, Jesus Christ. What about me? What about us? Think about the time we are living in. Jesus has ascended into heaven. He's at the right hand of the Father. He's coming again. And this is the time in between his first coming and his second coming. He left us his, his Holy Spirit. He's called us to gather as his church. And he has given us his mission. So what's our purpose today is to conform to Christ and proclaim Christ. And what I mean by conform to Christ, he's the mystery of godliness. So faith in him, trusting in him, confessing your sins to him, asking for his forgiveness and him to change you and guide you and mold you by the Holy Spirit and opening up the word of God and seeking the truth and saying, God, teach you to press upon my heart, change the way I'm going to act, form Christ in me. That's what we are to be doing, conform to the image of Christ, each one of us. We're basically like hard rocks. The Spirit is chipping away. He's forming the same thing in each one of us, Jesus Christ. Some maybe you're like, oh, I see it a little clearer. But that's what he's doing in each one of us, whether you're a new believer or a mature believer. So I pray that we would have a growing obedience as we're putting on things that's pleasing to the Lord, putting off things that are not pleasing. And I pray that we would more clearly see who Jesus Christ is. Like that we serve the living God, that we would be more full, more excited about worshiping in him have a greater reverence for him. And, and in his work in us, a greater godliness. So we're to conform to Christ and we are to proclaim Christ. We're, just as it says, proclaim Christ among the nations. And just think like, well, that seems like a, such a huge task. So part of that, proclaiming Christ among the nations for us is supporting church planting. Supporting church planning to the Democratic Republic of Congo. That the Lord would bless that effort there. Supporting church planning in Edmonton. Locally in the future. And so it's easy to like get stuck on just broadly. Okay, proclaim Christ among the nations. Proclaiming Christ among the nations also first. It, for sure it has to be proclaim Christ in the home. If you're, if you're married to your spouse to your children, to your grandparent, to, to your grandkids. For sure, it has to be proclaiming Christ to your friends. Proclaim Christ to your neighbors. Right? We can't like, no, no, I'm going to the nations. What about the people who live next to you, who live close to you? Proclaim Christ at your work. Proclaim it to everyone you have a chance to and friends. Sometimes we miss those opportunities. I even this past week, I was in this conversation with someone and my mind was somewhere else. I was distracted. 
And I walked away being like, oh man, I, I just, I missed something. I could have pointed her to Christ. And I missed it. I, 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 Lord, forgive me. Lord, help me to see it next time. Help me to, to see those opportunities. Proclaim Christ among the nations. I think we always need to be praying for an opportunity, looking for the opportunity, and then sharing. And even as a church, we want to help equip you for those in small group. In, in February, we're going to go through a book, What is the Gospel? We're going to talk about not only like, hey, what is the gospel, then how do we share it? What does that look like? How do we start those conversations? God help us, and he will. So we've seen the heart of the letter. It is Christ Jesus. May he be the heart of our church. May he reign in each one of our hearts. Amen. You just close with, close with me in prayer. Oh, God, I just pray that that which is from me may fall to the floor. I pray that which is from you seal in our hearts by your spirit. Help us to grow in godliness. Thank you for your mercy in our lives. Build your church. In Jesus' name, amen.